Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai. Seven topics, two minutes on each, and we start with Coates. That's Denise Coates, paid herself £266 million as the boss of Bet365 and founder and owner of Bet365, Greg. Indeed. Is that acceptable? Well, as the founder and owner, I suppose it's up to her what she pays herself. But um, looking at it from the outside, I can see why anyone looking at it from the outside, looking in, would, would say that is just an obscene amount of money for anyone to, to earn. And when you put it in the context of the gambling industry and the, uh, just the constant bad publicity that gambling is getting at the moment and has done for, I think, for, for, for many years, there's a lot of focus on the amount of advertising and feeling that it's just, uh, just too much of it, too much advertising around football matches, just the Bob Tees issue. I mean, I know that doesn't affect Bet365 at all because they're online, but that has also, I think, poisoned the well against gambling in, in society as a whole and uh, yeah so it's up to her but you also got to remember that bet365 like other bookmakers they're very good at closing down anyone who looks like they might actually make any money from racing in particular if you have two or three bets which beat the sp you're likely to find your account restricted or even closed uh, they have the ongoing publicity of the uh, the the megan mccann case which is going through the Northern Ireland courts at the moment, where um, which revolves around third-party betting and their TNCs, which mm. they're using to, to say they, they're refusing to pay out on a bet that would return a million pounds. Mm. Um, that's a really interesting case that's going to be ongoing. But, it's coming back next in uh, January. As, as far as her salary is concerned, she, people would say she's, she's paying a huge amount of money to the Exchequer. She pays her taxes. It's an onshore company. It pays its corporation tax. They're employing an enormous amount of people in Stoke that otherwise may not have been employed. The huge regeneration of uh, some of the area that she's working in. What's not to like? Well, but it's also a, it's a privately owned company. I mean, that's one of the keys to it. I'm sure that if, if it was a company with, with shareholders, they wouldn't be paying the chief executive anything like that amount of money. Um, and the fact that it's a private company also gives them certain advantages in some respects over over competitors, which uh, are have shareholders and perhaps approach the business of betting and gambling in a slightly different way. The bell has gone, so we move on to Bloodstock. Uh, I was working for Goffs at their sales this week. Uh, the top end was very strong indeed. The bottom end less strong. Luke Lillingston in the Racing Post has uh, given a very good interview to Lee Mottishead in which he says that a third of the bloodstock that is being produced and going through the ring essentially has been proven to have no value at all, which is a, a huge worry for the sport, isn't it, Henry? I, I think it's a, it's a massive problem, especially for commercial breeders or small, smaller commercial breeders. They can't compete. And if, they're, if these horses are not being, not being sold, they are fast going to go into business. And if they fast go into business, it's not necessarily a good thing because the, the production line will stop. And we need a production line of horses coming into the industry. It's a fact. It's just as simple as that. We have to have that production line. The numbers are not adding up because the BHA and to a certain extent Horse Racing Ireland are telling people that you need to produce these horses because we need big fields. We need products for people to bet on again. Yeah. But the economics are not there for the producers who are not billionaires, as Luke Lillingston said. The incentive is not there for the producers to produce the horses. Mm. And then there's always that lag behind as well, as uh, power gets concentrated towards the top of, of the industry, and it's happening in jumping now, as it's happened on the flat as well. And the, the prices at the very top are fantastic. Tattersall's book one, uh, extraordinary business yet again. 
but book two and also book three were diminishing mm. returns uh, week by week. And that's Tattersall's. And there are other sales which aren't even on, on that level. Well, it's the same at and Keeneland, at Faces Tipton. Goff's yeah. Orby sale was a barnstorming sale. Tat's book one, you're right. It, it, further down, it's, it's difficult. And you sense that people are looking three years into the future and seeing further concentration in, in ever fewer hands, more concentration of power at the top. And the, the market's just not there for the horses that aren't going to be part of that. So what do we do about it? There is no simple solution. No. That is the real thing. It's all very well saying we need more money, enterprise money, and all that sort of thing. The whole, it, it takes an awful long time to feed through into the industry. I think one of the real problems is, is the cost of stallions per se. It is, they are very, very expensive for breeding horses that end up being sold for, well, let out unsold. Um, it's never a good scene, that. that. So first suggestion, perhaps these stallion fees need to come down a bit and hopefully the market will, will dictate that, or well, possibly the market will dictate that. Let's have a look at Nicky Henderson in action yesterday. So this was an unusual sight. He's just measuring, measuring the size and stiffness of the, of the fences and you'll see in a moment he, he uses his twitch. He, he, <laughs> he uses his shoulder to, to measure the fence so he can presumably when he next goes to a race course can work out how it measures up to, to something similar. But the, the trouble is he's raised his left shoulder when he's done that. So when he puts it down again, he's gonna get an inaccurate reading. But the serious point underlying this is, were the fences at Haydock too stiff, Henry? I, I think, or big? I think obviously they'll have to look at the amount of haulers there were yesterday. There were probably too many, but I think it, 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 there's an awful lot to do with the construction of a fence. It's not necessarily the, the, the stiffness of the fence. It's to do with the belly on the fence, The the, the ramping on the fence, there are all sorts of connotations that come into building fences and I have my own schooling on them but lots of lots of people build fences extremely well on lots of race courses and they are very capable of at Haydock at looking at this and I'm sure they will and I hope, hope they don't have the same number of falls at the next meetings but I'm sure they'll get it right. And they've already said that they're going to sort of take the stiffness out of them. And there was me, Nathan, thinking that all fences had to be built to a uniform standard as stipulated by the BHA. Well, exactly, yeah. I mean, I was at uh, Ascot yesterday filming and uh, I had a uh, jockey coach with me, uh, Nick Bentley, and uh, we didn't see any racing from Haydock yesterday apart from the Betfair chase. We made sure we were going to watch that. And uh, the first thing we did was, after the first few obstacles, we were thinking, these are the best chases in the world. Why are they jumping so, you know, so big and bold like that? It was, it was, it was just weird to watch them jump like that. So um, there's obviously you know an issue with with the, probably the shape of them or, or, or the look of them because you know these are the best chasers in the world going around there. So um, it obviously needs looking at, but um, you know it was uh, it was a great result anyway. It's a bit of a throwback, isn't it, Henry? Having fences like that because you know, horses being made to jump them rather than hurdle them. You're old enough to remember Twin Oaks going around. Absolutely, Haydock. Twin Oaks and Rhinus <laughs> and yep. yeah. horses I mean, like it was that. Just, you know that, that it did look that way yesterday. They were like houses around there years ago, weren't they? They were big. It used to be scary going around there. And men were men. What's more dangerous, having fences like that or having fences that are soft so horses take a liberty with them? I think horses stepping at fences and learning to step at fences and you have faster falls because they're stepping and going faster. Is, is, is not, that is a side of it that isn't very good either. They don't, you cannot have fences that are too soft. That, I think, is a debate that is going to sort of 
dribble to a conclusion because I think Haylock are going to address this issue um, fairly soon. One that probably won't dribble to a conclusion anytime soon because it's appeared on this list several times is the quality of how races are started under National Hunt rules. And our very own Steve Mellish had his thoughts on the start at Ascot of the introductory hurdle on Friday afternoon. This is the thing that annoys me absolutely most about jump racing. I can't think of anything else that annoys me more. I sit on committees where, where trainers moan about their handicap mark. Well, they're perfectly happy to give away five lengths at the start, which are, you know, equates to a bit. Now, I realise not every horse wants to make the running, but that wasn't. That was single file. That after the, as they start, nothing other than the first four can win and let things go wrong. You're giving experienced horses a start like that. It, you know, farcical, completely farcical. And I don't care what they say, there is no excuse uh, for that, in my opinion. No excuse for that, says Steve Mellish. Henry Daly, is there any excuse for this? It doesn't look great, does it? I mean, let's be honest. As, as a betting public looking at that, it looks just shamata. Uh, it, it isn't probably the way forward, but I think equally, I, I'm not certain how these how races are now timed, but it must affect the time of a race yeah. as to whether, when the first horse has gone through or the last horse has gone through the through the timing section, wherever it starts and finishes. You get times of races are very important. We have a, you know, and it, that can't be can't be a very good thing. But more importantly, you want to be. Every horse has to be seen to have an equal chance at the start. Imagine if it was a if it was a running race, a track and field. You, people would just think you were completely crackers. Absolutely, uh, it it doesn't look good on just as as a race. It, it has no appeal if you have a bet on it, and your horse is one of the ones that just doesn't seem interested from the start. You're going to wonder why you've wasted your money. Um, it also then has knock-on effects in terms of, of the former. I mean, as a piece of form. What's it going to be worth? Um, it's it doesn't. It, it's not good for the sport. How do you? Have, the very fact that we're still talking about it and we keep talking about it suggests that it is a difficult one to address. If you have, if, if every jockey in the race has been told, look, mm. try not to make it. Just just true. But jump it, off behind. Well, and, when when it's just surely whatever the jockeys have been told to do, surely it's the starter's responsibility to make sure they're in some semblance of a line when they when when mm. the tapes go back, isn't it? He said, if they've lined up like that, he can't let it go. He says, right, come on, just get uh, yourselves in a line. I've seen it. They start point to points better than that. The starters don't have the power nowadays to ask a jockey to move forward. He does not have that power within, within his remit. Is that right? Well, I think so, yeah. I mean, like I say, obviously all those lads have been, have been told, you know, take your time, get your horse settled, and then get into the race. But, I mean, obviously they, they were that spread out, it was... Uh, the aesthetic of that looks awful, doesn't it? That's the thing. Well, it certainly does. There must, must be something that can be done about it, but we keep talking about it, so evidently it's not being. Let's uh, pay tribute now to the glorious career of Luca Kumani that came to an end this week. Not in fairy tale fashion. His final runner was beaten, but it's been a, <coughs> a truly extraordinary career, Greg. Yeah, wonderful. And, and he really will be missed. Um, it, I grew up uh, when he was absolutely in his pomp, and it was the time when... Henry Cecil and Sir Michael Stout used to pretty much swap the championship between them every season and Luca never quite managed to finish top of the pile but his horses were always there competing with those from the, the from the Cecil and Stout yards and there was just a sense there was something about his horses just seeing his name on a race card it, it absolutely belonged belongs in the same sentence with those two um, for all that he was never the champion he had some wonderful horses and you could 
always rely on his horses to run their races if he had one that was good enough to run in them. And a pioneer as well, Nathan. You talk about the global racing, a pioneer of Ptolemeo and Barathea and any amount of horses that he took, Japan Cup winners as well. Not just horses, people. You mm. know, a, a, great, a great guy to develop people. You know, all them great jockeys that have come from, come from there. You know, and even, and even trainers that have come out of, uh, come out of uh, Kamani's stable. You know, it's, he's a, a real uh, people developer as well, you know, so um, he's going to be missed. Uh, great guy. Now, Henry, you were working more in flat racing or in, in bloodstock in the 80s when, when Luca was in his pomp. He, he's, you know, when men like him retire, he definitely leaves a hole for a the, the racing public and the racing press and all of us because he's just one of the greats of training that have been around almost throughout my entire lifetime as a it, working within the industry. And you miss people like him. You need people like him. He also had a very very wicked wit, which was just good fun to listen to. <laughs> He was and also very good at sliding one in at the bottom of a big handicap oh, as well, which was something that yeah. perhaps Stout and Cecil didn't do. But he was yeah. one of his dark horses cropping up at the bottom of a, say, the Hunt Cut field or something. It was always good to see. Uh, special memories of a very special trainer. We were lucky enough to have him as a guest on this programme in the spring. Luca Kumani, who retired this week. Uh, Wolverhampton is a, a, another a procedural um, Error that has uh, has fallen the way of the of the British Horse Racing Authority. Uh, Greg, just talk us through the niceties of this. The niceties, <laughs> uh, horse that it had to be withdrawn on last night from the race. Um, it had been declared of its old handicap mark. Um, it, it won two races, one off fifty two, and then it won a race with a six pound penalty. But somehow it ended up getting declared off its former handicap mark when it should have been raced for sixty one which would have ruled it out of the race because it was an ought to 60. And yep. there's also a rule that says they couldn't just say, well, run off your new handicap mark with whatever the appropriate weight is because you can't change the weights after they've been published uh, at 9am, I think, on the day of the declaration is all. Um, so the BHA decided the horse couldn't run because um, it shouldn't have been qualified for the race. And so they ordered it to be taken out and the connections are going to be compensated somehow. But it... It's a horse that would probably have been favourite. I mean, it's coming off two wins, including course and distance. And it is another cock-up. Um, someone has missed something somewhere and it's managed to work its way through the system. Yeah, if, if you're going to put a positive gloss on it, you'll say, well, there's a backstop. <laughs> Did I say backstop? That's <laughs> worked here because the horse hasn't run and, yeah. it was, and they're going to be compensated. But the, the, clearly the point is, Henry, it shouldn't happen in the first place so the the failsafe has got to click in before the second failsafe if you like i think it, it it's unfortunate that it happened the way it did and everything else but i think one of the great beauties of racing in great britain is it isn't sort of absolutely verbatim all the time there are vagaries that there are bits that go wrong and in perverse sort of way that's quite a nice thing so long as it isn't hideously wrong but it does make for better racing in the whole, that things aren't actually always perfect. Mm, I'm trying to get my head around that. Well, you need to have the story of how the thing has got to where it's got. It, it's been a minor cock-up. It's not a huge disaster. But Mr Cromwell, it's really irritating and he's got unlucky. Okay. Okay. Uh, now I'm, I'm, I'm getting to the point. I, I know you want to talk about the Troy Town Chase, which takes place this afternoon, and a dozen horses in the same ownership. It doesn't matter who the owner is. I mean, it's Jigginstown in this case, so it could only be one of two. But um, 
you're, you're, you're unhappy with the idea that 12 horses from the same ownership are running in the same race. Well, in this, um, and Gordon Elliott's running, he's, he's running 12, not in, I mean, out of the same thing as well. And there must be integrity issues here that it's not Gordon's fault. He's doing what he's been told to do, not told to do, that he's what he decided is best to do, and that's the way the rules of racing are. But at the moment, Gordon, luckily, is a very straightforward guy and very straightforward to deal with. But if someone wanted to play hooky like this, I don't think see any reason why they should why why they wouldn't get away with it. And it it can't be right for the integrity of racing that this can happen. Greg, yeah, I mean, I, I I see the point. I agree, really. I think just visually, from a, from a visual aspect, mm. just from the people looking in, uh, if you're a punter who's had a bet, it's quite hard to establish which one of the ones in the purple and the white colours is, is the one you've actually got your money on. And I think it's perhaps slightly different. Obviously, Michael O'Leary has a huge number of horses. And to begin with, in his ownership career, they tend to be spread around a lot of different stables. Um, there, there's one point where there's practically hardly a stable in Ireland that didn't have one Michael O'Leary horse in it. And that's how it felt. They now seem to be concentrating all the time around Gordon, Gordon Elliott. And yes, he does have horses elsewhere. It's not but, Gordon's problem. Uh, but no, no, no. It's, it's not his problem. But this, the simple fact is he has an extraordinary number of, uh, extraordinary proportion yeah. of the best horses in Ireland. And the thing about every the, level. the Jiggenstown operation is that they like three-mile staying chasers. Mm. So if you get a staying chase, they're going to run... They would say, "Well, we've got all these horses. You want competitive racing? Mm. You want numbers? We'll run them all against each other, and they're all they're, and they're yeah. all going to do their best. So, what are we supposed to do?" Mm. There, there doesn't appear to be a very obvious solution, apart from the fact that just the actual the other side of it is the integrity issue, which is again, a, I think, a big issue. So it's a it's a perception issue what, again, yeah. irrespective of how those horses are actually run and the scale of it as well. I don't think there's ever been scale like this. J.P. McManus used to have a lot of horses, but it was never a case of having twelve in one race. I don't think. Well, certainly plenty to, to chew over this week. Hopefully we've, I'm not sure we've put forward many solutions, but we've highlighted, we've highlighted plenty of problems. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai.